Good evening, everyone, or a morning or afternoon or whatever time it is around the world at the moment. It's certainly evening here. Um, welcome to our webinar uh, on uh, managing dislocations of the knee. I'm Dr. Brett Fritch. I'm in Sydney, Australia uh, this evening for me. Um, and I'd just like to uh, invite um, a few words from my co-chair, uh, Sachin Tapazvi. Uh, we're, we're honoured to be part of a collaboration this morning with uh, the Indian Arthroscopic Society uh, and, Chas and Sachin as the uh, previous chairman of the Sports Preservation Committee. Uh, I'd like to thank him for his leadership with that and, and, and bringing this collaboration together. And I'll hand it over to you, Sachin, to briefly introduce the panelists tonight. Yeah, thank you, Brett. Um, I'd like to now introduce to our distinguished faculty who are both ISOCOS members as well as members of the Indian Arthroscopy Society. Today, we have a fantastic lineup of all the experts in this field of knee dislocations. We of course have Brett Fritch, who is our current chair for the Knee Sports and Preservation Group from ISACOS. He's uh, coming in from Sydney, Australia, and he will start off by discussing the acute management of the dislocated knee. Following that, we'll have Dinsha um, Pardiwala, again a member of the Indian Arthroscopy Society and also on the Knee Preservation Group of ISACOS. He will speak on management of cruciates, we have Sierra Stevenson, who's going to be joining us from United Kingdom. She's going to be addressing the medial side of the knee. I'll be looking at the lateral sided injuries. And finally, we have Kyle Martin from Minneapolis, uh, United States, who's going to wrap it up to discuss all the strategies for avoiding and managing common complications with knee dislocations. So I really hope that you find this very interactive and you find this webinar very interesting. It's a great topic. There's potential to have a lot of discussion. So use the Q&A box. You have a fantastic uh, faculty lineup right here. And uh, so Brett, off to you. You're up first and you're going to be speaking on acute management of the dislocated knee. Thank you, Sachin. I'm just pulling up my screen to share. I would remind everyone exactly what Sachin just said there. Feel free to use the Q&A button there to send in any questions you've got. We've got the, the panel, we'll talk, uh, answer as many of those as we can along the way live, and then we can uh, cover a few more topics in, in live discussion at the end. So it's a pleasure to be here this evening. Uh, I'm gonna talk about acute management of the dislocated knee. Uh, knee dislocations classified by the uh, position of the tibia relative to the femur. And if it's reduced at the time of presentation, it's classified by the main direction of instability. So what I would say there is beware of the reduced knee. You're probably dealing with a, a dislocated knee anyway. It needs to follow the same protocols. It just happens to be reduced at the time of your presentation. Uh, these are high energy injuries. About half are road accidents, about a quarter are sporting injuries, uh, two thirds are contact injuries and associated injuries are common. It's a multi-trauma situation in many cases with long bone fractures, thoracic and abdominal injuries, head injuries, pelvic injuries and the like. And these obviously take precedence in these high energy situations. Local injuries around the knee to the soft tissues, the neurovascular structures, the tibial plateau and the menisci are also part of the management. If you try and classify these injuries, you end up with almost as many uh, options as there are um, classifications of these ligaments. It's very hard to classify them. They're heterogeneous group of injuries. I'm gonna talk from our experience at our Sydney Orthopedic Research Institute. We've got a database of over 250 patients and 260 knees that we've managed as uh, multi-ligament injuries. We've got a combination of injury demographic data, clinical outcome data, and some gait analysis that would inform some of the opinions I'll put out there this morning. 
First thing I'd say is that uh, these are big injuries. They have significant impact on knee function. And no matter how well we manage them, patients rarely return to normal after their treatment. Daily living and pain assessment from a coup scale tends to do pretty well, but symptoms, sports, and quality of life uh, tend to be uh, uh, still reduced no matter how well we manage these. Uh, if we look at their Tegna scores, they tend to lose one level of activity shifting to the left, and it's rare to restore someone to their pre-injury level, so it can be done. If we look at how they go in the gait analysis, they tend to walk a little slower, step a little shorter, spend more time in stance phase, and spend more time in double stance phase, uh, post-reconstruction. Uh, and if now managing the acute injury itself, the acute management should start with management of the patient. It's then followed by management of the limb and finishes with management of the knee. Managing the patient is by EMST principles with assessment and management of the associated injuries as required. You need a rapid vascular and neurological assessment, reduction and temporary stabilization of the knee, ongoing neurovascular assessment, management of associated injuries. And then you get onto a focused clinical exam of the knee, imaging and definitive treatment of the knee structures itself. These are limb-threatening injuries. Up to 15% of cases in the literature describe a vascular injury. It was much lower in our series, probably because of the higher proportion of multi-ligament versus true dislocation. And there's no real relationship with KD classification. You need to look for this in any multi-ligament knee injury. There's multiple ways to assess it from uh, direct palpation through to Doppler ultrasound, ankle brachial index, CT angiogram, and formal angiogram. And the question always arises over, should you do a routine angiography or just selective assessment? We've always run a selective angiography approach in our database and our series, and that's supported by the literature. Well, these 10 studies that show it's a safe way to do things. And whilst you may miss something, what you're going to miss with this is only an acute intimal tear that you're going to manage with observation anyway, which is part of the selective protocol. So it's a stepwise algorithm. If you have a knee dislocation, reduce the knee and then assess for perfusion. If there's any signs of ischemia, go straight to the operating theater for an on-table angiogram and formal management. But if there's good perfusion, look for pulse asymmetry. If there's any pulse asymmetry, they get a CT angiogram. If the pulses are present and symmetric, then do the ABI. If the ABI is greater than 0.9, then another 24 hours of serial observation, then we can end the algorithm. If the uh, ABI is less than 0.9, uh, then a CT angiogram is indicated. From a neurological perspective, up to a third of these injuries will have a neurological injury. It's much more frequent if the postlateral corner is injured than if it's not. In one series, 31% versus 4%. And the frequency depends upon the pattern of injury. The higher the grade injury to the postlateral corner, the higher the chance of a neurological injury. So if you have a complete uh, grade three tear of the LCL, popliteofibular and biceps avulsion, it's up to 40% compared to 3% in an isolated LCL injury. In our series, it was just over 8%, but a quarter of the patients with a three ligament injury had a neurological injury and 20% of patients that had a postlateral corner injury had a neurological injury. Neuropraxia is more common than true neuropmesis, but it does affect functional scores with lower IKDC, CUS, and Tegna. You want to monitor the neurological status pre and post reduction. Check the common perineal nerve with dorsiflexion power, eversion power, and dorsal foot sensation, and the tibial nerve for plantar flexion power and plantar sensation. There's an algorithm that can be very complicated in managing these neurological injuries, or I can use my surgeon simple algorithm which is essentially if I'm going to take the patient for surgery, I do a neurolysis. Uh, if it, the nerve's intact, I'll neuralize the common perineal throughout the entire zone of injury. If the nerve's disrupted but reopposable, I'll get a plastic surgeon to do a direct primary repair. 
If it's disrupted and retracted or it's not reopposable, then no intervention. I don't think the fancy stuff works. Nerve transfers and cable grafting have very poor results in my experience. And I would rather just uh, move on to keeping the patient from developing any contracture and doing a stage tendon transfer rather than those fancy nerve interventions. You wanna reduce and splint the knee. It's usually pretty simple to reduce it with inline traction and manipulation. They're very unstable injuries, which means they're also easy to reduce unless you've got a buttonhole femur out the uh, quads, which you see occasionally. Bracing should be the minimum amount required to maintain a stable congruent reduction. For the vast majority of cases, it's a simple external splint, either a Zimmer splint in extension or a hinge range of motion brace. Occasionally, I'll mold a plaster back slab for a, a more fitted uh, holding of the leg before we move on to surgery. And then you've got, <coughs> excuse me, external fixator for open dislocations, vascular injuries requiring an urgent repair, the grossly unstable, usually they're associated with fractures. In my experience, PCL with medial plateau fractures <coughs> and the unbraceable or obese patient where you can't get a brace on. The diagnosis starts with ligament assessment. And the key here is you must set your starting station correctly. The PCL is the key to this. You want to reduce the tib medial tibiofemoral step-off manually with the knee at 70 degrees of flexion. And that you knows your starting point. From there, you do a posterior draw. You can do a Lockman or anterior draw. You can test uh, the medial complex with valgus stress at zero to 30, and then move on to the postrolateral corner. Postrolateral corner has multiple tests. External rotation recovatum, varus stress at zero and 30, external rotation posterior draw sign, the dial test, the reverse pivot shift, and the gate are all described. The first four are useful in the acute setting. The latter two are useful in the chronic. Imaging involves an x-ray. That'll show your initial injury. It'll confirm your reduction. It'll identify fractures and give you clues to the injury pattern. My take-home message about x-ray is don't hesitate to repeat it. I always repeat it 24 hours after the first initial reduction films obtained, and I do it again every few days in patients where there's a fracture, because I have seen these be reduced, and then 24 hours later, they're subluxed or dislocated again, despite being put in a brace, and you don't want to get to them at surgery three weeks later uh, with a fixed subluxation. CT has a relatively uh, small role to play. It's useful in two contexts, for delineating fractures and for CT angiogram. And it's MRI that acts as the workhorse in these uh, knee dislocations. It shows the pattern of disruption, the site of disruption, the associated injuries, and guides the surgery. Uh, stress x-rays are used in some centers routinely, in other centers not at all. I don't tend to use them routinely. There's several papers that have delineated that what we should be looking for in side-to-side -side difference in clinician-applied forces uh, to accurately diagnose injuries, particularly on the lateral side. The general approach to treatment, I would say, comes a lot from uh, level five evidence. There's no good randomized controlled trial here, and there probably never will be. The injury does not lend itself to it. Evidence supports early repair or reconstruction with functional rehab with several studies look, uh, showing better outcomes. Essentially, operative treatment tends to do better than non-operative treatment. Reconstruction tends to do better than primary repair, and early surgery tends to do better than late. If we look at the timing, this study review by Bruce Levy and Bob Marks showed that surgery within three weeks had higher Lysome scores, higher excellent good to IKDC scores, higher knee outcome survey scores, and the conclusion being that early surgery is better. Similarly, Nick Pujol in the group showed better outcomes with the acute postural corner reconstructions compared to the chronic. And this review by Kevin Tetsworth is a meta-analysis of about eight papers 
showed uh, a preponderance to better outcome for early intervention in all papers. So when's the optimal time? The optimal time, I think, is the second week between day seven and 14. You've got sufficient time for some capsular healing to have occurred to allow for simple arthroscopy and minimized extravasation for cruciate reconstruction, but the repairable structures can still be easily dissected uh, and add the repair to any re reconstruction. For me, around that day 10 is the golden period. Too early and fluids going everywhere, too late and there's so much scar tissue, it's a, a more difficult surgery. And the evidence as suggested, which suggests less than three weeks does better. Repair versus reconstruction, I do everything in a single stage. I repair bony avulsions, but reconstruct all soft tissue injuries, particularly on the lateral side. Um, the, there's a higher rate of failure with isolated repair and better return to sports with reconstruction. And there is an increasing use of things like internal bracing and augmentation for which we don't yet have much data, but I use it a lot in the multi-ligament setting. If we look at our own database, the vast majority of ACLs we reconstructed, the majority of PCLs we reconstructed, but on the medial side, it was about 50-50, repair with augmentation versus uh, reconstruction. And on the lateral side, any soft tissue we reconstructed, but those big avulsions of the fibular head fractures we repaired. <coughs> Excuse me. So I will mention alignment. Soft tissue reconstruction is prone to failure in various malalignment. And osteotomy alone can overcome instability, particularly the postlateral corner. But I see no role for osteotomy in acute management of the dislocated knee. It's already heavily traumatized, and I'll use this in any revision or chronic setting, but not in the acute setting. <laughs> On your surgical workshop workup, these are complex injuries. Make sure you've got enough time. Make sure you have a surgical team with the expertise, along with a nursing anesthetic, x-ray, and physiotherapy team. You need the right equipment, both mechanical and graft tissue. In terms of the graft, think about what grafts you need, its diameter and length, what graft you have access to, and what's the cost of accessing it. Uh, in summary, knee dislocations are complex injuries that are potentially limb-threatening. Management involves managing the patient first, managing the limb second, and managing the knee third. Vascular management is critical, but selective angiography is safe with an algorithmic decision-making process. Neurological management is key, particularly in the postlateral corner injuries. Uh, reduce and maintain reduction with a simple reduction and external uh, range of motion brace in the majority. Don't hesitate to serially check for reduction. And if you can't maintain a reduction, use an external fixator. Knee assessments are focused clinical exam. The neutral station's the key here to getting accurate diagnosis. X-ray and MRI act as your workhorse. Repeat that X-ray 24 hours after any reduction and as many times as you need to be confident it's staying reduced. Surgery does better than non-operative treatment. Early surgery does better than late. Optimal time is the second week. Single stage surgery to address everything is my approach and it's complex surgery. Good planning is key. The results are good, but rarely perfect. The more aspects you get right, the closer to perfect you will get. Get the priorities right, get the diagnosis right, get the timing right, get the surgery right and they get the best possible outcome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brett. So I'm gonna take the next one and the next one's on managing the cruciates. So most knee dislocations would have a cruciate injury. And this could be either uh, usually a bicruciate injury. And it doesn't depend on the position. It could be either the anterior, the posterior, the medial lateral, or the rotatory ones. Usually most of these knee dislocations will have a cruciate injury. That'd be the rare uh, KD1 knee dislocation, which would have only one 
of the cruciates, which is functionally deficient. Now, as Brett indicated, we've got different approaches for uh, a, a patient who's landed up with a knee dislocation. And that could be, and when I see these patients, I'm gonna be treating on the, uh, them either in the emergency situation, the acute situation, or the chronic situation. And the common indications for emergency surgery are either a patient with a vascular injury or an open injury, or a patient who's come with a compartment syndrome, or rarely patients with an irreducible knee dislocation. And these are really not the best indications for doing any cruciate surgery. So in the emergency scenario, you really don't want to be doing any of the cruciate surgeries, except if you've got, say, a KD5, a fracture dislocation, where that fracture is causing a vascular injury. In these scenarios, you may want to then reduce it, fix it in that emergency situation because your vascular surgeon is going to require a reduced knee with no fracture causing impingement on his vascular repair. Most bicruciate injuries are treated in the acute phase. And as we saw in the earlier lecture, the ideal time to do these is early in the second or the third week. And you have patients who will have either tears, which are mid-substance tears of the ligaments, or sometimes avulsions of the ligaments. And when we treat these patients in the acute phase, you can decide your treatment plan based on where you are. I think different institutions and different backup facilities will mean that you can do it either in a single stage, you could do this open or arthroscopic. If you don't have the facilities, you could probably also do the staged where you wanna do your primary repair of the collaterals first and then the cruciates at a subsequent stage. So there are different ways in which you could treat these acute uh, knee dislocations. But if you could, then literature would support that you'd wanna do all of this in one stage, probably in the second or the third week. You do your bicruciates as an arthroscopic bicruciate reconstruction with an open collateral repair with a reconstruction. But sometimes that's not possible. And sometimes you're gonna to have to do this stage. Like this patient who's had a knee dislocation with a patellar dislocation, and he's got a locked medial meniscus bucket handle tear. So of course he's got an ACL and a PCL tear with an MCL tear. He's got a locked bucket handle. He's got a MPFL tear. And unfortunately, although his vascularity is okay, he's got severe deep vein thrombosis. Now with that DVT, we can't go ahead and do an extensive surgery so in the first stage, you'd want to just do a quick reduction of the meniscus, repair the meniscus, allow that deep vein thrombosis, the acute DVT to heal, and then come down in the second stage. And in the second stage, then you'd do a reconstruction of the ACL, the PCL, and the MCL all in one shot. So you're going to have to decide your approach based on the patient. In the chronic patients who present late, you would decide this based on limb alignment. So if the patient doesn't have any limb malalignment, you may opt to do a multiple ligament reconstruction all in one shot. But if he does have some limb malalignment, then you certainly need to add an osteotomy to it. And you may want to do all of this with an osteotomy in one stage or do just the osteotomy with or without a slope correction in the first stage. And then based on the residual soft tissue laxity, take care of his ligament reconstruction later. Let's now see the technique that I would use for this. So this is a patient who has a chronic multiple ligament deficient knee and who's got no malalignment. He's got an ACL and a PCL deficient knee. Typically, I'm going to do these arthroscopic. I'll start off first with my standard anterolateral portal. Visualize this. Identify the ACL tear there. 
that's the ACL absent there. A lot of these patients will have some amount of a residual PCL tissue there. So some remnant remaining there. Of course, that remnant's not really helping too much. As you can see, this knee is significantly unstable. You can translate it anteriorly and posteriorly uh, very significantly. You would then put in a posteromedial portal, and from the posteromedial portal, take your tibial tunnel for the PCL. So that's my first tunnel that I take. So I'm visualizing from the posteromedial portal. My tunnel needs to be inferior so that I don't disrupt the remnant of the PCL. So this is typically about 18 to 20 millimeters below the joint line. And this is where we would see this in the MRI. So your tunnel needs to be distal. When you're making your tibial tunnel, you want to make sure that there's no inadvertent uh, progression of the guide wire. So you need to protect this with the PCL protector. I would then go ahead and with the shaver, make sure that my soft tissue opening is large enough for my graft to come through. But I don't want this to be as large as the bony tunnel. So I do want a nice press fit of the graft here at the tunnel aperture. I use a rasp just to chamfer the superior edge so that I don't get any sharp edge near this killer turn, which is then going to cause late graft attrition. Finally, I pass my beath pin in and a leading suture so that I don't need to go back to the posteromedial portal anymore. My next tunnel is the femoral tunnel for the PCL. And you could use either a single bundle or a double bundle approach for the PCL based on the graft that you have. And typically in this, again, I'd like to preserve my remnant. So I'm going to be doing a single bundle, anterolateral bundle type of reconstruction for the PCL. So the guide wire comes in from outside to in, and you could opt to do an inside out too, if you so desire. You then take make your tunnel there, and your tunnel again needs to be as anterior to the medial femoral condyle in this area so that you've got the maximum advantage of that PCL. So the tunnel there, as you can see, is an anatomic tunnel for the AL bundle of the PCL, and you've managed to retain some amount of the remnant there. My PCL graft is going to come in between the ACL and the PCL in an anatomic fashion. So once I've done this, I will get on then to the ACL. So I'll take the ACL femoral tunnel first. And typically in this situation, I'm going to use an offset guide and flex the knee because you've made two tunnels there. You'll have some amount of extravasation of your fluid. So you want to make sure that you visualize this area really well. Typically in these scenarios, I'm going to use a suspensory fixation. So make the socket and make the tunnel there. And once I've completed my tunnels, I'm going to take the femoral socket for the ACL. And then finally go ahead with the tibial tunnel for the ACL. So my four tunnels are now created in there. I've got my leading suture for the PCL already inserted. And all I need to do is pass my grafts. Now you could choose your uh, technique for graft passage. I prefer to pass my PCL first. And I'll pass my PCL from the tibia to the femur first. Now to help this, a few tips. From the posteromedial portal, you can put in a trocar, which will act like a pulley. And that helps to push the graft posteriorly. And this helps again for that graft to get in quite easily. It's not a difficult graft passage. 
if you've got a pulley there in the posteromedial portal. So once you've got the PCL in there, you then pass your ACL graft. So that's the ACL graft going in there. And that would then complete the bicruciate reconstruction. So you've got the ACL and the PCL done. Now, what's the sequence of graft passage and fixation that I would use if I'm doing a multiple ligament deficient knee? So typically in a patient who's got a multiple, deficient, uh, multiple ligament deficient knee, it's the PCL that I think that needs to be passed and fixed first. So it's the PCL graft passage followed by the ACL graft passage. The PCL then gets fixed. Once the PCL gets fixed, I don't fix the ACL. I'd rather do my PLC because if you have a PLC deficient knee, your rotation of the tibia is gonna, it's gonna change if you fix the ACL without having your PLC in an anatomical situation. So I'm gonna do my PLC graft passage and fixation next. I will then fix the ACL because if I fix the ACL without doing the PLC, my tibia is gonna go into external rotation and be fixed in an external rotation. And finally, I do the MCL, both graft passage and fixation. Now, what about patients who have avulsions? And this is, uh, is not that uncommon in knee dislocations. So you can get avulsions of the ligaments and you can get uh, not just bony avulsions, but true ligamentous avulsions. So this patient who has an avulsion of the ACL and the PCL and who's got a floating meniscus here with both his roots gone, his ACL, his anterior and his posterior root of the medial meniscus are torn. This would be again an indication for an early repair. So for these early repairs, I'm gonna first go ahead. So this you wanna do early, usually within the seventh or the eighth day itself. Check the reduction and once you've got once you, you show that you can reduce this, you'll go ahead and then sequentially repair it. And typically in this too, I'm gonna to be doing my repair for the PCL first. So the PCL peel off from the femur, we fix this first, then we'd fix the ACL, get the root in position, and then go ahead with the MCL reconstruction. This patient had no PLC, so that's why it's the PCL, ACL, meniscus roots, and then the MCL. And typically, because these are acute, you'll see that they heal quite well, despite them not being bony avulsions, and they give you a fair amount of stability. So in short, we've seen the different approaches for bicruciate ligament injuries in knee dislocations and the techniques that we'd use for these. Thank you. Okay, um, hopefully everybody can hear me. My name is Kira Stevenson and I'm going to present the medial side of the knee. These are my disclaimers. I'm a paid educational consultant for Smith & Nephew and I'm the chair of the Advanced Multiligament Knee Reconstruction course in London. I work in a level one trauma centre in Belfast and uh, we see about eight to ten dislocations per year. But as Brett alluded to, there are two types of dislocations. We'll see the trauma from the motor vehicle accidents and we'll see the sports dislocations. And so these patients can present with a reduced dislocation 
And so if we see a multi-leg, we have a high index of suspicion that that knee may have been out, and they go through the same protocol to assess for vascular and neurological injuries. A fifth of them have a nerve injury, 8% have a vascular injury, and unfortunately, a quarter of these patients that we treat with dislocations are ultra-low-velocity, morbidly obese patients. Are all medial injuries the same? Um, the picture in the left and the picture in the middle can still produce a dislocated knee, but they will behave differently. And I would say that no two medial sides of the knee are the same. And we will talk interchangeably throughout this presentation because a multi-ligament injury can be a dislocation. Um, and so sometimes you might think, why are we talking about just a multi-ligament knee injury? Um, it could have been dislocated. So what I wanna try and focus in on is which do I fix? How do I fix them? And what are the risks associated with that? So for me, that would be the Stenner lesion, which is the avulsion of the distal MCL, where the superficial MCL has lifted and flipped over the PES uh, hamstrings, or a combined multi-ligament knee injury where you have got grade three gapping in full extension. And I was quickly trying to answer a question on the chat before my talk came up. And it was basically, there is no level one evidence out there to say that you must reconstruct everything and do it in a single stage in one go. Um, <clears throat> the quality of the literature is lacking and there are RCTs ongoing at the minute, but at the minute what we have is systematic reviews um, and certainly they favor operative intervention early in a single stage. Um, the only RCT that I could find specifically looking at the medial side was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2006. And this was looking at multi-ligament knee injuries with ACL, MCL. They reconstructed all the ACLs using BTB and they braced half of the medial side and reconstructed half of the medial side. And they found no significant difference between groups. However, if you look at the big systematic reviews, they do favor operative treatment in terms of functional outcome and return to work and activity. What I like to do is treat every patient on an individual case basis. Use stress radiography, use clinical examination, and specifically evaluate the MRI scans and where the lesion is and if there is tissue present or tissue absent whenever you get in there. So this was a 15-year-old who came off a motocross bike, and the specific mechanism of injury is so important. Um, this was presented to me as a 15-year-old with an isolated ACL foot plate avulsion. And I asked, what's the mechanism of injury? And they said, the patient came off a motorbike. And I said, well, that's a multi-ligament knee injury until proven otherwise. And you need to be suspicious that that knee has been dislocated. Because when that foot hits the ground, which they do when they go to ground, the bike torques the knee. And that's an ACL, MCL at the very least. So when we examined the patient, we found they had marked bruising and soft tissue swelling in the proximal tibia. And they had opening grade three in full extension. So look at the coronal MRI medially, distally. You can see that that MCL is off. And if I see that blowout distally, then I'm concerned that that could be a stenner lesion of the distal MCL. So this patient also had a comminuted ACL foot plate and an undisplaced fibular head fracture. So I took the patient to theater for an early reconstruction. Um, I opened them medially, and this is what I found. So we've got the superficial MCL, which is a broad fan ligament, and it had flipped out over the top of gracilis and semi-T at the level of the pes. And so in that situation, I'll do a direct repair because once you reduce the ligament underneath the hamstring tendons, you've got direct contact to bone and they will heal. I also did an ACL foot plate repair at the same time. 
and the patient uh, returned to his bike at three months uh, with, a, with a normal knee. Be aware of the sports knee injury. So if you get someone coming in off a rugby pitch with a foot plant valgus twist and 90 kilograms levering on it, that's going to be an ACL combined with an MCL and it may have been dislocated. Look at the bruising, look at the clinical examination and just have an high index of suspicion that something else is going on here. There is good evidence in the literature that suggests that single stage reconstruction in these in a sports setting have better outcomes. And so if you get grade three opening in full extension, then I would, I would reconstruct that um, early and acutely in addition to an ACL. I like this paper from Japan, which looked at 17 patients with ACL MCL injuries, and they found that there was just a femoral sided injury to the MCL when they were braced, there was no residual laxity. But if the injury extended throughout the entirety of the MCL, they had residual laxity. And so if we go back to the patient that had the rugby injury with the, the valgus force, and we look at the coronal MRI scan, you can see they had a blowout of the medial side, and that went entirely throughout the MCL. So this is what I would do in that situation. I harvest semitendinosus, so leave it attached to PES. I bring it up into the femoral insertion of the MCL. And I like to take, mark an extra 25 millimeters on the graft and I whip stitch that and I bring that into the femur and then I'll bring the second limb back down and into the tibia. So before I do that and fix anything, I check for isometry of the graft because the last thing you want to do if you're doing these acutely is to over constrain the knee and end up with an arthrofibrosis. And this is one that I, this is the rugby patient that I reconstructed with a BTB ACL and an ipsilateral MCL reconstruction using hamstring. I don't see an issue with arthrofibrosis, and this is what I was trying to re reply to on the chat just before I came on. Um, and that's because I've got a really good physio team that work with me and rehabilitate the multi-legs. So they know the importance of trying to reactivate quads, controlling that terminal extension and reducing the effusion in the early stages. And you can see these are, you know, this is the patient at six weeks, just coming out of the brace with good range of movement. The wipeout knee, the KD3M knee, and this is what I would like to go back to what Brett said, you need to have a clear plan. So I do this on the whiteboard for every one of these patients, and you just accept that it's going to take time. Um, I like to do the medial approach first, because um, once you put the, the scope in, the fluid will extravasate out the back of the posterolateral capsule, particularly if you've got a big posterolateral capsule blowout. So do the medial approach, identify if you've got tissue present, um, drill your tunnels and then start the cruciates. And then you can put the tourniquet up and do the cruciates and then let the tourniquet down and pass your grafts in the medial side. And it just takes that pressure off you a little. There's two papers I have up in theater. Um, this paper by Gilbert Moach um, is fantastic for how to avoid tunnel uh, confluence if you're doing multiple tunnels, particularly if you're doing an MCL, PCL combined. And I have that just as a quick visual aid in theatre, so I know to drop my hand and aim proximally. The other paper that I also have is the graft fixation angles and the order of fixation of the grafts. And this is just, again, a quick reference whenever you're in theatre and you're, you're fixing these. So this is just to demonstrate, this is a KD3M that I did. Um, and I have the standard operating procedure, as you can see there on the left. And I have that laminated and taped to the drip stand in front of the scrub nurse so she can anticipate my next move and she knows exactly where we are in the case. And that's in case you get in there and it's, you know, like a bomb's exploded and you have to do a lateral root repair 
and the meniscus is gone. And you can see in the bottom right, you've got the big medial drive through sign of the MCL rupture as well. So have a clear preoperative plan. This was um, a knee dislocation and someone alluded to graft choice. Um, and I like to use Achilles allograft for PCL reconstructions, but I also like to use the flare of the Achilles allograft for the superficial MCL because um, it recreates the normal anatomy of the superficial MCL and the proximal tibia. It's a wide fan ligament. And sometimes that's, um, we're asking much of a round tubular hamstring structure to recreate the same biomechanics. Um, try to keep the approach minimally invasive on the medial side if you're doing a posterolateral corner reconstruction at the same time and um, make sure that you've got good soft tissue bridges. Um, this is my physio team in the Royal and Belfast, which are excellent. And this is the patient that we saw. Um, you can see good terminal extension, no extensor lag and good range of movement. He still has the indentations from his jack brace and he's been very compliant with it. So my take home messages would be, beware the reduced knee dislocation. Absolute indication on the medial side is a stenor lesion. I am quite aggressive in combined multi-ligament knee injuries, but you can argue the liter literature either way. Do what is safe in your unit. And if you want to put a KD3M in a PCL brace and see if the PCL and medial side will stick down and then do a delayed ACL reconstruction, that's okay too. Because currently there's no level one evidence to the contrary. And if you're going to do the, these and you're in a unit that isn't just doing soft tissue multi-legs every day, double up, find a friend, because having someone that can prep the grafts while you're drilling the tunnels and vice versa is, um, is essential. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ciara, for that fantastic talk. I'll now move on to the lateral side of the knee. And um, essentially, thank you so much to Isakos and all my friends from the Indian Arthroscopy Society. Isakos has um, kept for all of us to grab a fantastic 45% discount on their membership rates. And all my friends from the IAS who are not Isakos members, I will encourage you to quickly grab this offer because it, this uh, is a fantastic opportunity for all of us to have great access the Journal of uh, ESOCOS to Journal of Arthroscopy to get discounts. If you want to apply for uh, an APC for the ESOCOS Journal, and it gives us access to all the ESOCOS books, publications, discounts on the Congress and the various surgical skill courses, and also access to auto evidence as well as the global link. So all of you who are IS members and who are not yet ESOCOS members, do avail of this fantastic opportunity. All the IAS, members will receive an email from the IS office and also non-group members of the ESACOS uh, are not in, are ineligible for group membership. So please note, which is extremely important. So IAS members who are not ESACOS members, this is your chance. So traditionally we've looked at the lateral side of the knee as a three-layer concept and this goes way back in 1982 where you know the three-layer concept was proposed. But I think we now prefer to look at it as more of an anatomic concept. And the reason for this is that we recognize all the various biomechanical structures, such as the iliotibial band with its extension, which is the iliotibial extension on the Gurdy's tubercle and the iliopatellar fibers, as well as the fibers of the iliotibial band, which blend with the intramuscular septum and form the Kaplan fibers near the supracondylar tubercle. The longer of the biceps, 
is the next most important structure on the lateral side. The long head of the biceps um, inserts directly on the tip of the fibula. And you also have an anterior arm that extends onto the fascia covering the peroneus muscle and a short head that blends with the iliotibial band. The biceps femoris is the strongest knee flexor and is the strongest tibial external rotator. And please note that it's attached to the tip of the fibula. So whenever you have a fibular tip fracture, it's not the FCL that has come off, but the biceps that has come off. And when the biceps comes off, the nerve will lie superficial. And that's when you need to be careful. So the nerve which courses along the posterior aspect of the biceps femoris will curve around the deck of the fibula and pierce the fascia of the peroneus and then divide into the superficial and the deep branches of the peroneal nerve. And again, an important point that I just mentioned, if the biceps comes off, then the nerve is superficial and it can be at times subcutaneous and you need to be really aware of the same. The deeper layer is the more important layer with the three important structures. You have the fibular collateral ligament, which is the primary restraint to lateral opening or varus and also an external uh, restraint to external rotation at low flexion angles. The popliteus is the main external rotation restraint at higher flexion angles, and the popliteal fibular is a secondary external rotation restraint again at higher flexion angles. So depending upon which structures are injured, you get these instability patterns, and you should be very well aware of the various anatomic insertions of these structures on the femur and the fibula, which will then assist you to making your surgical plan. What happens when you tear the lateral side? Not only do you get lateral opening, but the axis of rotation also shifts to the medial side, and then you get an abnormal external rotation laxity or abnormality as well. And this is what we really pick up when we are doing our two clinical tests which are important because lateral-sided injuries do not heal naturally since it's a convex on convex articulation. So the things that we check clinically are the lateral opening, both at 0, 30, and 90 degrees of flexion. This will let us know which structures are involved. And we also want to look and assess for any amount of abnormal external rotation laxity by doing the dial test, again at 0, 30, and 90, always comparing it to the contralateral limb a higher degree of rotatory laxity in both deep flexion uh, with a large amount of opening both at 90 degrees of flexion will imply that you have a grade 3 PLC along with the PCL injuries. Stretch x-rays are extremely useful. We prefer to do them ourselves. And if you have a PAX, then you can easily calculate the amount of opening on both sides. You always x-ray the contralateral limb and a difference of more than four millimeters on a side-to-side -side is quite diagnostic of a complete postulateral corner tear. So Brett covered the initial part of uh, this discussion. If you have an acute PLC injury, a grade one injury can be treated non-surgically, but grade two and grade three injuries require a primary repair with an augmentation with a cruciate ligament, which may be done as a combined, as the combined setting or at a delayed session. The, Primary repair technique is based on anatomy. So based on whether you have a fibular, tibial, femoral, or meniscal-based tear, you need to go ahead and repair all of them. So this is an example of uh, grade three PCL with PLC with a common peroneal nerve palsy. So he had a KD3LN uh, type of an injury, and he was elected for primary repair. There's no role of making small mini incisions. You need to expose 
the knee very widely, you need to make a, make a large posterior-based flap. So center your incision more anterior rather than in the midline. The first thing that you want to do is to identify the common perineal nerve, do a neurolysis, then go to the deeper layer, open the anterior arm of the biceps fascia, look at the avulsed FCL and the avulsed popliteus. The avulsed FCL takes you to exactly where the insertion site is. You then identify the popliteus tendon, and then you go deeper and then start by repairing it from deep to superficial. So the first thing that you want to do is to put in a couple of suture anchors and restore the meniscotibial ligaments. Then you'd want to go ahead and repair the capsule separate from the iliotibial band. And then what is most important is that we have enough literature that tells us that on the lateral side, repair alone is inferior. So you want to go ahead and augment your repair by doing a soft tissue reconstruction. And then you reattach your FCL and repair the various structures, namely the iliotibial band and biceps above it. If you have an acute avulsion on the femoral side, please remember to recess it by at least about 10 millimeters. This takes off any creep or stretching out of the structures from the femoral side. On the tibial side, you'll do the same, multiple sutures, and then you want to really reapproximate that repair. And then once you've repaired it primarily, you'd prefer to augment the same. The ideal timing is around two weeks because anything above three weeks, the nerve starts looking like scar and scar starts looking like nerve. When you look at chronic PLC injuries with neutral alignment, you then evaluate them, whether they have laxity and opening in or towards extension or in both extension and flexion. And based on your clinical assessment, you then would need to decide whether you want to do a a fibular-based technique like the Larson or the Arserio, or whether you want to do a tibial-based technique like the Leoplard type of reconstruction. And of course, you want to perform a simultaneous cruciate reconstruction. If your alignment is in varus, then you want to perform an osteotomy along with a simultaneous postlateral corner reconstruction. And then depending upon the expertise, you may perform an ACL or a PCL either in the same stage or in a delayed manner. The Larsen's technique was the first published technique, which was a single loop technique with an oblique fibular tunnel, and it aimed to reconstruct the FCL and the PFL, but Arcedio's modification of the same with two anatomic femoral tunnels and an oblique fibular tunnel was far better because you could reconstruct the FCL and then pass the graft through the fibular tunnel and then reconstruct the popliteus, which then gave better rotational control. So you mark out an incision, which should be at least about 10 centimeters in length, based distally in between the girdies and the fibular uh, tip, and proximally over the lateral epicondyle. When you flex the knee, it curves up. And of course, as we said, you make a large and decent incision. You make three indoors to expose the various structures. The first is just below the head of the biceps for the peroneal nerve. The second incision or the second window is in the anterior arm of the biceps to expose the FCL inserting on the fibula. And the third is in the iliotibial band based on the lateral epicondyle to expose the femoral attachments of the FCL and the popliteus. So this is the first window which exposes your peroneal nerve, the second window which exposes the FCL, and the third window which exposes and allows you to drill tunnels for the FCL and the popliteus. The tunnel in the fibula should be an oblique tunnel directed lateral to medial, posterior, uh, sorry, lateral to medial, distal to proximal, and it should be obliquely 
angled in such a way that it is angled about 60 degrees in the coronal plane and about 50 degrees in the sagittal plane. And this gives you a nice long length of the fibular tunnel without risk of breakage of the fibular neck. So how would you perform an arcerio type of reconstruction? Once you've drilled your tunnels, you take a single loop of your semitendinosus graft. You first pass that graft into the tunnel that you've drilled for the femur FCL, and you fix it with an appropriate size interference screw. This is then passed underneath the iliotibial band and passed through the fibular tunnel from anterior to posterior, and then keeping the knee flexed to 30 degrees of flexion in a lateral closing force and no rotation, it is fixed in the fibula with an interference groove passed from front to back. And then the remainder of the limb is pulled underneath the first limb and is fixed and tensioned at about 70 degrees of flexion. And this gives rise to an arcelio type of, um, of your reconstruction. But when you have a grade three PCL with a grade three postlateral coronary injury, such as been shown in this particular um, patient image here, uh, doing a fibular base technique is probably not good enough. So he has a large dial test at 90 degrees of flexion. And for these, you require a tibial based technique where you have to drill another accessory tunnel in the tibia, which is placed about 15 millimeters medial to the tibia, which is placed about 15 millimeters uh, distal to the joint line and just medial to the Gurdy's tubercle. And this is drilled from anterior to posterior with a retractor at the back of the knee. So how do you do this tibial-based reconstruction? You require two soft tissue grafts. The first soft tissue graft is passed, uh, is the first soft tissue graft is used for the FCL and for the popliteus. And the second one is used for the popliteus tendon reconstruction. The tibial tunnel is first drilled using an appropriately uh, aiming guide and it is drilled from anterior to posterior and a passing loop is kept in place to receive the grafts. The first limb of the graft is passed inside the FCL femoral tunnel, fixed there with the help of an interference screw, passed underneath the iliotibial band, just like the arcerio, and then passed through the fibula front to back. The knee is kept in 30 degrees of flexion and with a lateral closing force and no rotation, fix it within the fibula. The second limb of the graft is now placed uh, in the tendon for the popliteus. And both these grafts are now passed from back to front in the tibial tunnel. And with the limb at about 70 degrees of flexion, the graft is fixed in the tibial tunnel with the help of an interference screw. And this is what gives you your tibial-based reconstruction technique. So friends, uh, what's important to understand is that the lateral side has complex anatomy and biomechanics with poor healing potential. Acute repairs, you should augment them. For chronic instability, alignment is important. And based on your instability pattern, you decide whether you should do a fibular or a tibial-based reconstruction technique. Thank you very much. And now I turn it over to Kyle to discuss about complications of the uh, multiligament knee injuries. Thank you, Sashin. Let me pull mine up here. All right, so thank you for the invitation to participate today. I have nothing to disclose. So my goal will be to go over some of the common and devastating complications of multi-ligament surgery, uh, including a discussion of the available evidence from the literature. And along the way, we'll also discuss some strategies to prevent and manage a few of the complications 
that may occur throughout the life cycle of knee dislocations. So to quote Mark Miller, complex knee surgery is, well, complicated. These are just a few of the misadventures or unintended consequences that one might face in the process of multi-ligament knee injury management. As you can see, I've broken this list down to the pre, intra, and post-operative time points and included some of the quoted rates from the literature. For the purposes of this talk, I've selected these five to focus on for a bit of a more in-depth discussion, although we could probably devote an entire afternoon's discussion to the uh, topic as a whole. So before we dive right into the specific complications I highlighted, we should pause and consider the words of the Dutch philosopher Desiderius Erasmus. Sometime around 1500, he was quoted as saying that prevention is better than cure. And although he wasn't necessarily speaking about multi-ligament injuries per se, I do think his words are applicable. In the case of multi-ligament surgery, preparation is paramount. So this photo is taken from one of our recent multi-lig cases, and I just find that writing the steps, grafts, and implants out ahead of time is a valuable step. It keeps the team on track, and it minimizes any sort of distractions and delays, which can take focus away from the patient during surgery. Along with having a good surgical plan and backup plan, it's also important to recognize the risk factors that may be present with an attempt to optimize the modifiable ones if possible. So some of these risk factors that can lead to inferior outcomes or a higher risk of complications are listed here. When possible, the modifiable ones like smoking or coagulopathy should be addressed prior to surgery, but we already talked about how these injuries are often um, time sensitive and with limited time for optimization. So it's still a good practice to keep the risk factors in mind when planning the surgery and discussing with the patient. All right, so time to jump into some of the specific complications starting with the preoperative period. So in orthopedic surgery, we often think of DVT as a post-operative complication, but with high energy, energy uh, injury, sorry, like knee dislocations, there's also a risk of blood clots preoperatively. So while no formal guidelines specific to multi-ligament injuries exist, I think it's wise to consider anticoagulation for those patients that may experience a delay between injury and surgery. I typically use aspirin for this. I've also gotten into the routine of ordering preoperative ultrasound to rule out a DVT for any of those patients that might experience a delay in getting to me after their injuries. And this process is actually reinforced um, when I did pick up a DVT uh, using this approach. So if we jump into the intraoperative complications, we're going to start with the big one, and that is vascular injury. We talked and heard already about vascular injuries in the preoperative uh, setting from the injury itself, but this is more specific to intraoperative. And so the popliteal artery lies between seven and 10 millimeters posterior to the tibial PCL attachment, and that's with the knee flexed at 90 degrees. So this puts this major vessel at risk during surgery, and injury typically occurs during one of two parts of the procedure. The first is during drilling of the PCL tunnel, and steps to reduce the risk of injury during tunnel drilling include the knee flexion, uh, direct visualization, including the use of a posterior medial portal and or a 70-degree arthroscope. I use PCL-specific instrumentation, which is key. Uh, fluoroscopic guidance can be very helpful, as well as the use of acorn reamers, which give a little more control and feel during the reaming. The second way vascular injuries can occur is during shaving while clearing the notch. And even if you feel that you're far away from the back of the knee, you have to be careful. With posterior capsule injuries and distorted anatomy, the vessel is at risk during this step. So what do we do if we see the dreaded red rush from the back of the knee? Keep your cool 
alert the team, put up the tourniquet, apply pressure, and call for help. Although prevention won't help you in this case, preparation can. And what I mean by that is being familiar with your hospital and local resources available to you so you know who to call and where to send the patient if transfer is required is beneficial. So the good news is that after talking about vascular injuries, the rest of these complications won't seem so bad. Tunnel convergence, while not a limb-threatening condition, can still ruin your day, however, and deserves a bit of a discussion. As we know, these injuries often require multiple tunnels and sockets in close proximity to one another, and convergence can easily happen, as we've already heard. <clears throat> the good news is that we have a roadmap for how to minimize the risk of convergence, thanks to the work of Gilbert Moche, Rob Laprade, and the rest of their team. So these articles are definitely worth a read for anyone who does multi-ligament surgery. Using collision modeling, they're able to find that angling the FCL and popliteus sockets about 35 to 40 degrees anteriorly is best to avoid the ACL socket. And we already saw this, that on the medial side, the MCL sockets should be angled anteriorly and proximally to avoid the PCL sockets. On the tibia, they found the highest risk of collision was found to be between the POL and PCL tunnels, and convergence can be avoided if the POL tunnel is aimed anterior to Gertie's tubercle rather than right at it. You can also angle your MCL uh, superficial um, fixation distally as well. So even while following the roadmap, I do recommend watching for convergence while drilling the sockets. So what I'll typically do is create my cruciate sockets first and then view into the socket with the arthroscope while creating the medial and lateral sided sockets. So in that case, you see the collision with the pin in there. And then if a convergence is recognized this way, it's easy then to adjust the trajectory as done here. And then you can go ahead and ream the socket, ensuring the integrity of the cruciate sockets are maintained. So sometimes a little convergence is tolerable also, depending on the graft choice and fixation construct that you have planned. Obtaining an anatomic reduction and proper graft tensioning sequence has also been touched on, and it's important to avoid the complication of increased internal rotation or posterior subluxation. So in another landmark study, Gilbert laid out the optimal graft tensioning sequence to follow, and this paper was looking at uh, KD3L injuries. So they recommend starting with the PCL and then the ACL, and that will restore the central pivot, followed by the lateral side and then finishing medially. So the last intraoperative complication category I wanted to touch on is the dreaded fixation failure. So you've worked your tail off, drilled the tunnels and sockets, passed the grafts, and then shit. And this can be a demoralizing occurrence toward the end of the case. But on the bright side, it's better for the fixation to fail during surgery than a week or month later. And the other good news is that despite the multitude of potential reasons for the struggles, there are also lots of potential solutions. I recommend having a number of backup options available to you when planning the multi-leg cases, because sometimes you just need to tie over a button, use a staple, or add a screw. Know what's available and do the best you can to weave the OR with a stable graft, because it's worth the extra time in the OR. So lastly, I want to touch on arthrofibrosis. There's been a bit of a discussion in the chat on the uh, question and answer area about this already, um, but this is a common post-operative complication. And although traditional insights suggest early surgery is best for multi-ligament surgery, we also know that early surgery is associated with a higher rate of post-operative stiffness. So knowing this, I still try to get these patients in for surgery within about three weeks whenever possible. But as we've already heard, we move them aggressively in the post-operative period. 
So early range of motion and physiotherapy is key to decreasing the rate of arthrofibrosis. Even then, it still occurs, but the good news is that manipulations and lysis of adhesions work pretty well to improve motion when needed. So just one other point regarding arthrofibrosis. Sometimes we can be to blame and recognition of technical errors, such as putting a suspension device through the quads tendon can help avoid the iatrogenic barriers to post-operative motion. Overall, no matter how experienced you may be, the reality is the complications happen. The keys are to minimize the risk of them occurring through meticulous planning and careful but efficient execution. You must also remain vigilant and quickly identify when a problem occurs. And when it does, take action to correct the problem or in extreme cases, minimize harm through damage control. It's crucial to know ahead of time what resources or personnel are available to help in-house, locally, or remotely. I also think it's super important to be forthright with the patient and their family. Don't try to cover it up, shift the blame, or minimize what occurred. Patients truly respond best to humility and honesty, which is the only way to maintain trust. And finally, I think the most important point is to make sure you speak with someone about what happened. So we carry a lot of weight on our shoulders as physicians, and it can be a lonely feeling when complications occur. Make sure that you debrief with friends and colleagues, not only so you can process what happened in a healthy way, but also so others can learn from your vulnerability and your experience. Some references and thank you. All right, that's the end of the uh, the formal presentations and I'll kick off the next stage just by thanking uh, all our panel. Um, I'm torn always between answering the questions in the Q&A and actually listening to the talks. Uh, and despite the fact I've managed lots of multi-leagues, I always learn an immense amount uh, being part of these things uh, and uh, no different this evening. So thank you. I think they're outstanding. So um, we've got uh, as much time as we want to take to answer some questions. So I've taken a few from the Q&A um, that uh, prioritize those that we'll start with, but don't hesitate to keep sending them through. The first question I'm going to throw to the panel is about graph choice. It's popped up a lot. A lot of the attendees have been asking about graphs. So let's let's use the scenario of the ACL-PCL posterolateral corner. So a significant uh, multi-ligament reconstruction that's going to be needed. And we'll do two quick, two quick rounds. First question, you got access to anything you like, autograft, allograft, artificial graft, whatever. And then I'm going to ask you all again to answer when you only have access to uh, autograft, when there is no allograft option, because not all uh, regions of the world have access to allograft, including Australia doesn't have that much. So um, firstly, let's just run around. ACL, PCL, postural corner, any graft you like, what do we use and why do you use it briefly? Dinshaw, do you want to start us off? Okay, so if I'm going to be using any graft at all, it's going to be a quad tendon for the PCL. It's going to be a hamstring for the ACL. And I'd use an allograft for the PLC. That way, I don't need to go to the contralateral limb and uh, touch that side. If I had to use, uh, if I had to use only autograft, then it would be a quad tendon for the PCL, a hamstring for the ACL, and I'll use the contralateral hamstring for the PLC. One quick question on that quad tendon for the PCL. How long does it need to be and how long can you make a, a quad tendon graft? I've always worried about length 
with the PCL is the major issue and and uh, and obviously quads long enough, but just tell us about length requirement and length you can obtain with a quad for the PCL. If you're doing it for the ACL, you could use just the quad tendon without bone. But if you're using it for the PCL, then you need your graft to be at least about 11 centimeters long. And so you're gonna take about 25 millimeters from the superior pole of the patella, and that gives you that extra length for the quad tendon. For the yep, PCL. I think that's an excellent tip because I usually use an all, all soft tissue quad graft for ACLs, but you need that extra length in the PCL. So absolutely. Uh, Ciara, over to you, then Sachin, then Carl. Okay, so if I was doing a KD3L, traditionally what I would use is allograft for the PCL, because I like the fact that I can put a bone block into the femur, and I like the fact that it's predictable, I've got length, and you can also get a good diameter graft for the PCL. I will use allograft semi-T for the posterolateral corner, and I will use contralateral hamstrings for the ACL. So that's what I routinely do because I have good use and good access to allograft. Um, I would change it if I didn't have used the allograft, and I would use the hamstrings, contralateral hamstrings for the PCL, because again, I'm worried about length. Um, and I would probably use BTB for the ACL and semi-T for the posterolateral corner. Excellent. Sachin? So if I had access to anything and everything, then I'd probably use an Achilles tendon allograft and uh, I would use a portion of the Achilles tendon for the PCL, which is going to be a single bundle. I'll use the remainder of the same allograft, um, the other strip, for reconstructing the ACL and I'll harvest a single semity to perform the uh, postlateral corner. If I'm doing uh, fibular based or I'll harvest the semity plus gracilis uh, or sorry or I'll harvest the peroneus longus to do a single limb reconstruction tibial base which we wrote up in the arthroscopy techniques journal by preparing a y-shaped graft of the peroneus longus and then you can you know, use, a, use a single tendon to do um, a tibial based postlateral corner reconstruction. If I'm going to be doing uh, something with autograft alone, then here I would use a BTB for the ACL. I'll use a semi for the PLC, and I'd either use a triple peroneus longus or a quad tendon, depending upon the thickness and the length of the uh, quad, quad tendon for the PCL. So that will be my way to look at it. Great, and Carl, round us out. Yeah, that's great. I'm fortunate where I do have ready access to allograft. So I'll use an Achilles allograft typically for my posterior cruciate ligament. Um, depending on the age and activity level of the patient, I might choose autograft, even though I have access to allograft for those young active patients for the ACL, and then I'd use a VTB. Um, otherwise, for those older patients or um, ones I'm not going to use autograft, I'd use an allograft VTB. And for my posterolateral corner, I typically do a, uh, a Laprade technique using two tibialis anterior or tibialis posterior grafts uh, for that. If I had to use all autograft, um, I would be concerned using hamstrings for the PCL in terms of the size. Uh, so I'd be using quads with a bone block for the PCL. Uh, I'd use a uh, BTB for the ACL and then um, semi-T either ipsilateral alone or ipsilateral and contralateral to have the two limbs if I'm going to do a Laprade technique. So I don't think the gracilis necessarily be uh, long enough uh, for that purpose per se. Excellent. So yeah, I think there's, there's many options. Uh, there's no one answer. It's about what graft you need in terms of length and diameter, what graft you can get 
whether that's autograft uh, dictated by soft tissue injury or other injuries or allograft availability. And then there's the pros and cons of the trauma of getting it, the biological benefits of autograft versus allograft uh, and weighing all that up. So there's not a single answer, but I think the panel's covered that beautifully. Before we move off the topic, one quick thing, is anyone using synthetics? Um, I think internal bracing has a lot of interest in, in ligament reconstruction. Does anyone use an internal brace? So can I start? I go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll go first, Cal, and then we'll see if we agree or not. But um, So I get asked this question a lot when we get um, international delegates to the knee reconstruction course, because you know um, I'm told that people use synthetics for the cruciates, and maybe it's just because of my Aussie experience, Brett, you can relate to this. Um, yep. I was told that synthetics are the devil um, by the Australians, and um, it's just because we spent a lot of time revising them the synovitis and the high failure rates that we saw associated with the synthetic ligament used for cruciate reconstruction. Um, so they do well initially, but they fail, they fail early and they fail catastrophically and the amount of damage to the joint. But I do see it used um, sort of outside the joint for collaterals. Um, I personally don't use it. I try to use autograft or allograft, but um, I certainly have no use of, of synthetics. Yeah, I would certainly say that the Lars, like the full synthetic, we saw, we saw that experience. I personally haven't seen that at all with the internal brace. And I use an internal brace for all my cruciate reconstructions in multi-leagues and I've actually seen it. The real benefit is in a PCL, you know, a good PCL used to be considered okay if it's stretched out to a grade one and a half to a two sometimes. And you don't see that with the internal brace. I think Bruce Levy's got a great paper uh, looking at the biomechanics of a PCL reconstruction. So 100% agree with those comments in regards to the Lars and the full synthetic, but um, I'm not so, I'm, I'm much more, I use the internal brace uh, a lot in multi-leagues to augment my um, uh, autograft or biological graft and I do it in a seatbelt fashion. So the graft, the, the biology should be taking the load, but having that backup with the internal brace in my hands. Kyle, sorry, you had something? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you don't want to have all the tension running through the internal brace, fear about stress shielding, um, and then also um, having that fail first if, if it's going to. But having it a little bit looser than the graft when it goes in, I think it's okay. I don't use it a, a ton for my wealthy legs, um, except well, you know, medially. I think the um, repair and then augment with an internal brace is valuable. Um, and then if I'm using suspension fixation, I'll usually just add an internal brace over there um, with my cruciates. But since I've moved primarily to Achilles and BTB, I don't typically use it for my cruciates at this point. Excellent. Thank you. Um, the the next question, I think Sachin uh, raised yeah. this uh, in the chat. Yeah, I think a couple of questions. The first question is to Ciara. Um, <clears throat> There's a lot of publication coming from your side of the world about the use of a short MCL graft. I mean, would you highlight whether you use a short MCL reconstruction or whether you would still do a conventional uh, MCL reconstruction? That's the first question. And then once you've answered that, uh, there's another follow-up question to the other panel as well. Um, okay, so yes, I saw it demonstrated at Isikos in, in Boston in June. Um, and I think the, you know, the biomechanical studies will follow and, and the clinical outcome studies will follow. Um, I think we need to be careful because that the, the group that are um, presenting in that treat a very specific cohort of patients. 
um, and not necessarily representative of the cohort of multi-ligament dislocations that we see. Um, so I, I don't have experience of that short isometric graft on the medial side of the knee. My concern would be that you can over constrain the knee and end up with stiffness, um, particularly um, in areas where maybe you don't have good access to post-operative physio. Um, so I don't use it. Um, I think we need to be careful in terms of the patient populations that we're treating. Um, and, but yet, having said that, I'm very interested to see the clinical outcome papers when they're published. Okay, very quickly uh, across the panel, we'd like to have your opinion on if you're dealing with a chronic medial-sided laxity, how many of you would do a reconstruction of both the superficial MCL and the POL as two separate graphs, or would you just incorporate one graft? Dinshaw? Two separate graphs. Two separate graphs. Sierra? Yeah. Sierra, would you do two separate graphs or just one single graft? So for me, I only recreate both um, POL and MCL and chronic uh, medial-sided laxity. If I'm doing an acute multi-leg, I just use one graft. And for me, that's enough in the medial side. And plus, by the time you're doing ACL, PCL and the lateral route, that's a lot of work. And um, so I just use one so, graft of the medial side. So that's for the acute. But for the chronic, you use four tunnels, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. And Kyle, how about you? Four tunnels or just one graft? I would use one graft. One graft and Brett. Move it back down for the POL. I'm going okay. to be different and use three tunnels. I use two, like recreate the POL limb and the superficial limb, but with a single femoral tunnel and two tibial tunnels. Um, and I would, in, again, only use that in the chronic case, as Ciara said. In the acute case, I actually often just use an internal brace with no graft because the biology of the MCL in the acute setting is that thing desperately wants to heal. The MCL is great at healing. The issue is if you don't have isometric stabilization of the medial side, it'll heal at the wrong length. So I'm not in the MC, acute MCL. I'm not trying to reconstruct the anatomy. I'm trying to reconstruct the isometry just temporarily so that I can move the knee quickly in rehab and let the uh, biology do what it, it's going to do. Uh, and so I can just, you know, two tiny little tunnels in a single um, internal brace is very low trauma in a high traumatized knee. The biology is going to create the soft tissue envelope by me constraining the medial side isometrically. But that point about getting the isometry spot on is key because you don't want to over constrain it. Um, another thing that we did not really discuss upon are the extensive mechanism injuries. So very frequently you'll find that a lot of these knee dislocations would have an associated patellar tendon injury or a you know, quad tendon injury. And once that happens, it really throws our whole algorithm out of place. So Brett, very quickly, an acute, uh, let's say KD4, along with a patellar tendon or with a quad tendon rupture, how will you tackle it? Will your rules still be the same or are the rules of the game going to change? No, I think it changes the game of the rule, the rules of the game a lot. I think in this setting, all I'll do is actually reconstruct the extensor mechanism I won't reconstruct everything else. Uh, the, uh, the Sorry, I won't do the cruciates. I'll do the extensive mechanism in the collaterals. I'll rehab those and I'll do a second stage cruciate because the here you've got very competing rehab. In For the extensive mechanism, you want to go slow. For the cruciates, you want to go fast. If you do a reconstruction and if you mix those up, that doesn't do well. So primary primary thing in a knee for me is a functioning extensive mechanism. So I'll re rebuild that, do the collaterals if they're involved, leave the cruciates alone, 
rehab them uh, pretty slowly with an extensive mechanism, and then come back if needs be and do the cruciates. Any difference of opinion between uh, uh, anyone else do anything different? I think I agree with that completely. So do your extensive repair, do your collateral repair. So I'd repair everything. I'm not going to do any sort of augmentation or take any autograft at that point of time. And then you go really slow, make sure you get your range, and provided you've got a good extensor mechanism at the end of the day, you can always come back for reconstruction later. And at that point of time, if your repair hasn't done well, when you do your bicruciate reconstruction, you could do your reconstruction for the medial or the lateral side too. The only if, other uh, comment I make Sachin about extensor mechanism is it's missed a lot. Um, yeah. The most of the extensor mechanisms I've seen in multi-leagues have been secondary referrals to me where they've been missed in the first setting because you're distracted. The, the the less experience might be distracted by all the other injuries. And you don't just you don't sort of routinely look at the extensor mechanism of as part of the evaluation, I think. So just make sure to the attendees that you do always check the extensor mechanism in the context of the multi-league. You don't want to miss it. It's a disaster if it's missed. The one thing I would clarify on that too is, is whether it's a full extensor mechanism or more often you'll see an MPFL medial retinaculum, which might extend more proximally and involve part of the extensor mechanism. In that case, I would still just proceed and do a primary repair and my uh, multi-league reconstruction without staging it. So Kyle, I think there's a relevant question uh, related to you know possible complications, and that involves um, the scenario when you have a fracture of the fibular head when you're dealing with an acute uh, multiligament, uh, an acute knee dislocation. So how do you tackle these uh, injuries where there's a fibular head fracture, and does it really differ whether it's a fibular tip, a fibular head, or a fibular neck fracture, and what sort of uh, treatment plan would there be that is a treatment thought process that is involved when you're dealing with such injuries yeah i i knew it would come up i was going to put in a few slides on this but it just would have been too um too much to try to talk through in a 10 minute slide while ignoring everything else i knew it would come up in the questions and the reality is it's it's case by case right so um if you can get a repair if you can hold it down there with uh, a screw and washer sometimes or even just a screw if it's big enough i think that's ideal uh, make room for your tunnel around it if you can. If you have to go more distally with your tunnel, sometimes that will work. If you go a little lower in the fibular uh, head neck area, if it's more proximal injury, there's limits to that because you don't want to cause a fracture lower down. Um, you can also um, secure, the biggest issue is the, the postural corner reconstruction, trying to get your graft secured in the fibula. And honestly, sometimes you take what you can get. And if you have to fix it to um, the tibia in that area, uh, kind of through the, the fibula, um, kind of fusing the, the proximal tib-fib joint with a screw, you can kind of use a screw and washer to hold your, your graft. I've looped it underneath and kind of back on itself. Uh, trying to find a way to draw that out would be the best way to describe it rather than using words. Um, I'd be interested to hear what everybody else is trying because, you know, you do enough of these and you're going to see a bunch of different variations of fibula fractures and, and proximal fibula anatomy. And I just find this is the one part where I just end up thinking on my feet with some preparation and planning ahead of time. But it really is a read and react and take what you can get. Uh, but what, what do the other people think? I 100% agree. That one, there is no rule for this one. It is... Uh... It's where you get freestyle surgery, figure out where you need to fix it somewhere. 
um, and 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 you it's dictated by what you've got to work with. Yeah, I totally agree. And Kyle, what you alluded to earlier on about having plan A, plan B, and plan C, because you might look at it in the X-ray and you think, oh, that's a big enough chunk. You know, I'll get um, you know, I'll get a screw in it, or I've TBW'd actually a couple of them. Um, and then whenever you get in there and the metaphyseal fibula is soft and quite often these are the morbidly obese low velocity dislocations so um the easiest thing i find in those is the, the important thing is try and get the capsule back to the tibia and um, because it really supports the repair and then if you can get the suture anchors into the into the fibula and they just whip them through biceps and lcl but yeah they're they're plan a plan b and plan c and you take with what you get um with a big incision for the big knees so in about more than i think in about two occasions uh, in chronic uh, untreated fibular uh, neck oblique head fractures i've disregarded the proximal fragment i've fashioned a small five millimeter btb graft and i've uh, snuck one end of the bone plug intramedullary inside the fibula fixed to the interference screw going from proximal to distal. And the other part has gone to the FCL to reconstruct the FCL. And I've taken a soft tissue graft to reconstruct the popliteus as, you know, as a separate graft. So I've done that on two, okay, two occasions so far. It's worked well, but it's probably in those chronic situations where it comes to us as a non-union. And then, you know, when you go ahead and try and expose that piece, it's absolutely nothing short of an eggshell. And uh, you know nothing's going to really hold through when you're trying to go ahead and fix that. So you know, just uh, level five evidence or level six evidence, so as to say. Uh, I think one one question that has popped up a lot that we'd like the panel to cover is around rehab, how we rehab them. Um, the issues that I think most attendees want to know is about weight bearing. Like I assume pretty much everyone uses a brace of some sort post-op, but mention what you do with, again, let's just use ACL, PCL and, uh, and one of the collaterals as, as the example. Bracing, yes or no, what settings? Weight bearing, yes, no, when? Uh, how aggressive are we with range of motion? Dinshaw? I think uh, each patient is different. I think you need to really consider when you're doing this, uh, the patient profile, uh, age of the patient, so all of these. But on the whole, you want to protect these reconstructions for a longer period of time. I would rather start off range aggressively early because you're going to be reconstructing them. You can do that. If there's been a patient that I've done just to repair and I've not done an augmentation or reconstruction, I may go a little slow. If there's been a meniscus repair, especially if there's a root or a radial tear repair that I've done, then I'm again going to be slow on the weight-bearing part, and sometimes it's be six weeks of non-weight-bearing. But I think it's really important to activate the muscles there. The quads need to be activated really early on. So you don't want to be immobilizing them for anything more than uh, necessary. So normal meniscus, normal cartilage, ACL, PCL, post-rachial corner reconstruction, immediate weight-bearing in a brace? Uh, I'd, I'd keep them probably non-weight bearing for about a week or so, just so that, you know, for pain relief, it's a big surgery. But if they, they're in a brace and they're locked in full extension, they can start weight bearing at about a week, a partial weight range bearing. Of, range of motion, start that at range a week? Range of motion would be within a week for sure. Yep. Ciara? Yeah, so I'm, 
my physios ask me for protocols for these all the time and I just can't give them one because every patient is different and you know yourself intraoperatively the fix that you've got and if it's going to be one of those fibular head fractures where it's soft and it's chewy and you know it's like an eggshell and you're not happy with the fix I don't want a posterolateral corner weight bearing in that and um, so I you know for particularly if it's PCL if it's a KD3L um, with a posterolateral corner I, I don't weight bear them early um, but I do get their range going early. And so the physios know they see them, they get um, reactivation of their quad, they achieve terminal extension. They know that's the one thing that I really push and harp on about because I'll, you can always chase flexion, but you'll never get extension back. So as long as they are activating quads, isolating quads and achieving terminal extension, um, but I don't let the posterolateral lateral corner side wait very early, I'm too chicken. Yeah, I think that's a really key point. You can't chase extension. If you lose extension, if you get a fixed flexion contracture, there's no solution. So you can always chase flexion with an arthroscopic release or an MUA, or you can always get it up to a reasonable point. But if you've got a substantial FFD, um, you're going to have that forever. And that's significantly inhibiting on outcome. So I really, for the attendees, um, emphasize the point Ciara just made about don't lose extension. We can argue about flexion, but... Um, make sure you're getting full extension. Uh, Sachin? So I think, uh, you know, basically if they have a KD3 or a KD4, the PCL takes uh, the lead, the reconstruct, the rehab is based on the PCL. So I'll use, I'll keep them in a PTS brace for about a month, which they use during the day and night. I start with a range of motion, only prone flexion is allowed. I do not want hamstrings activation for at least about 12 weeks because it's um, harmful for the PCL rehab. And then after about four weeks, I'll put them in a PCL brace, which they wear uh, during the daytime, and they'll take it off and exercise. So I'm pretty slow with um, and their weight bearing. They, you know, they're about 50% uh, weight bearing for the first three weeks, followed by full weight bearing. They'll use a PTS brace all night for the first four to six weeks, and they'll be using a PCL brace at least for four to five months. And that's what I insist to them when they have such a big uh, injury that requires a reconstruction. And Carl? I agree. Patient-specific, you know, here in Minnesota, we have some patients that are a little larger than other places in the world. So the ultra-low velocity multi-ligament knee injuries, I'm not going to weight bear those early because that's a lot of force going through the knee. If there's a, a young, healthy college athlete with great rehab and supports available, uh, based on how they're doing, I might let them weight bear a little bit earlier. But I agree on a KD3, post corner, um, protected weight bearing for usually at least the first four weeks uh, and then gradually go from there. I agree with the hamstring activation. If there's a uh, PCL injury, we want to limit that. Or if there's a posterolateral corner involving the biceps uh, and then knee brace is probably another discussion we could have in terms of how long people are bracing. But I give typically uh, the patients, if possible, fitted for a PCL, um, you know, specific brace. We can talk about the different brands out there, but one of the specific um, PCL braces Get them fitted for it preoperatively and then give them a regular hinge brace postoperatively until the swelling comes down and they can transition as soon as possible into that PCL brace. Um, I typically keep the braces on, I tell them full time, essentially 24 7 outside of standing straight up and down if you're in the shower or if you're on your stomach. Uh, for the first six months, I do that for the, the PCL brace. And then I tell patients, hey, you've made it six months, that's great. If you can give me another six, awesome. If not, I get it. I'm asking a lot of you. So um, some of the people I trained with, 
they found that even if you stop using the brace after the first six months, the graft will stretch out a little bit before that one year mark. So if patients can get the whole year in their PCL brace, they're okay with it. Awesome. I've had great results with that. Uh, I just want them to know if they stop using it, it's okay. They've done a good job. It might stretch out a, you know, a little bit. You must have a lot more compliant patients than I have because I, I want them to wear the brace for three months and most of them come back after the eight-week visit carrying the brace saying, I hate this thing. So they, <laughs> you must have going to be a year. I can usually get six months out of them. A year. Wow. You've got a much more commanding presence than I do, I suspect. Um, one thing we've picked up in our research, uh, which changed my approach to multi-league in the last few years, is when we analyzed our outcome scores, the patients that had a little bit of residual laxity were happier than the patients that were stiff. And when we did the um the when we do the surgery, this complex surgery that we've put our you know heart, soul, and energy into doing this massive reconstruction, I have a real tendency to want to protect that work and make sure when I objectively measure it, they feel as rock solid as possible. But our outcome data suggested the opposite. So I've really gone a lot more aggressively on the rehab uh, than I did prior to and doing that analysis. So I'll use a PCL support brace as well. I try and get them for three months. Um, worked super hard on extension as Ciara um, emphasized. Um, but I let them fully weight bear immediately. Weight bear is tolerated in extension, locked in extension, but unlocked for range of motion because in the extended position with a reduced knee and collateral stabilized with a support brace, Really can't see the downside to it. Um, of course, it's case by case modification, but um, stiffness is a is the most common complication, and it's one that really affects the the outcome scores in our our database anyway. Um, we we're well over time. Um, we've got still two thirds of the two thirds of the attendees are still here, so uh, we can we can keep going like this forever. We might run one more round of questions, or, or Carl. I was just going to say, uh, you know, we talked earlier about, um, you know, varus or valgus malalignment and in the acute setting, not necessarily correcting that. Um, one thing that I've been burned on since I had the complication talk, I'll share this story as well, is I saw a patient and he was acute multi-leg and I was treating him like an acute multi-leg, except he came to me at around that two, two and a half week mark where you're getting close. I couldn't get him in before that three week window I usually use. And I tend to take those patients and give them a little bit of rehab and try to come back to them, you know, maybe around that six to eight week mark instead of doing it acutely. The problem was he had a contralateral ankle fracture that was fixed before he came to see me. So he was a non-weight bearing on the contralateral side. I saw him at this two week mark and I kind of said, all right, let's give him a bit of time. Once you're weight bearing on the other side, bigger patient, um, then we can go ahead with multi-leg at a delayed fashion on, on the side that I was treating. I went ahead and did the surgery. Um, in my head, I was thinking acute multi-leg, but by that point, he was in varus bilaterally. So he was already varus to begin with, but he just stretched out enough that he did end up failing. So this poor guy had was ankle fracture, non-weight bearing, and then he was weight bearing and had a multi-leg. Then he failed and I had to do an osteotomy to correct it. Then I staged it and after the osteotomy had healed, I took out the plate and did the multi-ligament revision. So that wasn't a lot of a fun uh, for the patient or myself. Um, so one of those situations where, you know, you don't treat the varus malalignment if it's the acute injury because the tissues haven't stretched out. Um, but just beware if there is a bit of a delay between the injury and surgery that even if it doesn't seem like it's a long delay, a little bit of physiologic varus uh, and a high patient load and a little bit of time um, might change your management in that case. So hopefully someone can learn something from that experience. 
Yeah, these are infinitely challenging. It's a humbling profession and doing multi-league in, uh, injuries is a really good way to stay very humble. Um, there, there will always be something that makes it hard and they're really rewarding things. I think we might we might work, walk towards wrapping this up. The um, the point everyone everyone's made is about that whiteboard and the plan. And I think that's key. I think if you do your plan a day or two in advance, it helps clarify your own thoughts. If you then write it out on the board for your operating team, it clarifies the thoughts for everybody involved. And I've that's been a game. I saw someone do that at a live surgery that I just wasn't doing it before. I knew what I wanted to do, but wouldn't do it. And it's changed. It makes the whole theater experience a lot better in the outcome. So um, I'd just like to thank again the panel um, for their time, the time, not just today, tonight doing this, but the time it takes to put this together, to put talks together like we just saw. Uh, from the panel takes an enormous amount of time. Uh, and thank you. They're all very busy and very esteemed in their practice. So thank you all for that. Um, I'd like to thank ISACOS, the ISACOS executive office, um, and everyone behind the scenes, uh, Michael and Hillary and Laura and, uh, and everybody that helps make this happen. Um, they do an outstanding job. Um, and finally, thank all you attendees for, for signing up, being part of this. Uh, the questions are flying through thick and fast and, and that shows the engagement uh, with the session. Um, and and my, finally, my co-chair, Sachin, thanks for helping organize this and uh, proposing it, organizing it and, uh, and, and getting it uh, happening. Uh, have a great, great day and a great night, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.